Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you open your Bibles, we're going to take a look at the very end of Romans chapter 9 this morning, verses 30 through 33, as Paul brings this chapter to a close. Now here's our text. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would counsel us and grant us your wisdom. Lord, we pray for your spirit to illuminate these words. In Christ's name, amen. At the beginning of chapter 9, there was a grief that drove Paul to write. It was the grief of looking around him and seeing his, his friends and family, his, his loved ones, his people, rejecting the Messiah. Israel, the, the, the ethnic people of God, the chosen people not accepting the Messiah. At the same time that the Gentiles were coming into the church, Paul looked around and saw that the people who, who should be quickest to receive him were not. That lament is what has driven us through chapter 9. And now we come to the end of chapter 9, and Paul says, what shall we say then? Signaling that he's going to summarize his thoughts. He's going to kind of give us a, a, a handhold to hold on to as we puzzle over this mystery. And what he gives us is a paradox. He gives us a paradoxical statement that, uh, that, that suggests something about the ways of God that might puzzle us. It turns out that those who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. Those who didn't chase after righteousness nevertheless have, have grasped it. But by the same token, here's the paradox, those who pursued it, those who chased after righteousness have failed to obtain it. Those who made no effort at all have gotten it. And those who made every effort have failed in the attempt. That's the paradox. The Gentiles, he says, the nations, the Greek word is, is ethne. It's the word two weeks ago, Brennan Manning mentioned, Brennan Manning, Brennan McCafferty mentioned, uh, ethne is translated as a Gentiles, sometimes as nations, others. He suggested today we might say people groups to dif- distinguish the fact that in nations you have many different people groups represented. So Paul looks out at all that diversity and he sees God working in all of it. He sees the nations, the Gentiles, the people out there on the other side of the line coming to faith and receiving the gospel, receiving the Messiah who was promised. He says they have attained righteousness even though they didn't pursue it. They didn't go after it. They didn't work for it. Nevertheless, they have attained righteousness. And what kind of righteousness? 
He's very specific about the kind of righteousness they've attained. It's the righteousness that is by faith. The righteousness that is by faith. If you go back to Romans 3, Paul has already talked to us about this kind of righteousness. In Romans 3, 21 and 22, he talks about uh, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And that's a righteousness that now has been manifested, Paul says, apart from the law. Right? This is a righteousness that doesn't come through keeping the law. This is a righteousness that can only come through faith. So the righteousness that they have attained is the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to them through faith. That's what he's saying here. Now, even though this was a righteousness that was manifested apart from the law, it's not as if the Old Testament doesn't testify to it. Right? In Romans 3, he says the law and the prophets all point to this. And to say the law and the prophets is just a shorthand way of saying what we would call the Old Testament. Right? Although it's not manifested in the law, it is testified to throughout the Old Testament. And we've seen that as we've worked through Romans 9, which is sustained by, by one after another of these Old Testament quotations, referring back to that revelation of the law and of the prophets. So there's no mystery here. There's no surprise, in other words. If you'd had eyes to see, you could have gone back and, and known that this is what was going to happen, and yet people were taken by surprise. In fact, some of the people taken by surprise were the ones who were working hardest to attain righteousness. Israel did not attain righteousness despite pursuing it, which hardly seems fair to us to work so hard to make so much effort, to, to try and, 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 and want so much to, to, to grab it, right? to go down the path, to take the journey, and to fail to reach the destination is tragic. But Paul says, tragically necessary, because in pursuing righteousness, it was pursued the wrong way. The path that was taken was the wrong path. It was a path of works. They did not pursue it by faith, he says, which is the only way to reach it. Instead, they tried to make themselves righteous through works. Paul points out they didn't succeed. You can never succeed in making yourself righteous by your own works. The only person who could do that is Christ, which is why the only access to righteousness comes through faith in him. And every other attempt, Paul says, is doomed to fail. So there was a lot of effort, there was a lot of work, there was a lot of, of what seemed like goodness and piety and good intentions that went into this pursuit, but it could not succeed. If you try to justify yourself through your own works, the only thing you can do is fail. If you pursue the path of self-righteousness, you'll always stumble, inevitably. Paul makes this point, he gives us this paradox, and then he closes the chapter with a quote from the prophet Isaiah. He gives the Old Testament, he gives the law and the prophets the last word in this argument. He gives us the quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Which is great. There's just one problem with that, which is that that's not actually what Isaiah wrote. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 28. But if you go back to Isaiah 28, 
in your Bible and you look for this verse, you'll find Paul gets some of it right, but he also gets some of it wrong. He misquotes the prophet Isaiah, which is kind of puzzling. Why? Now, when you first read this, you could be forgiven for not realizing that he gets the quote wrong, right? Because how many of us know the prophet Isaiah well enough that when people quote from Isaiah, we say, wait a second, hold on, I think you got that confused. Typically, we just don't know Isaiah that well, but, but Peter could help us out here. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, this is interesting. Paul, the pointy-headed intellectual, gets the quote wrong, but Peter, the humble fisherman, gets it right. He quotes Isaiah correctly in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you turn to that, it's worth looking at, 1 Peter chapter 2. We went through uh, the epistles of Peter not long ago. Last week, I, I mentioned in passing 1 Peter 2 because Peter's talking about the same thing that Paul is talking about. But if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and you go down to verse 6, you will read these words, for it stands in Scripture, and here he's quoting Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that is the correct quotation. If you go back to Isaiah 28, you'll find the words that Peter quotes here are correct. So you have to wonder, uh, what's going on? Did Paul's memory fail him? Should he have flipped through his Bible first and quickly checked whether or not he was getting the quotation correctly? Well, if you keep reading in Peter you begin to see what it is that Paul is doing. He's not just making a mistake. He's, he's intentionally doing something. If you go back to 1 Peter 2 and you keep going, Peter quotes a few other learned, uh, lines. He starts with uh, Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he also quotes this from Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8.14. So what Paul does at the end of Romans 9, he's not getting it wrong. It's not a misquotation. What he's doing is he's quoting Isaiah 28, but at a certain point he substitutes the words of Isaiah 8.14. He does this for a reason. He does it for rhetorical effect. Now, again, if you're not familiar with the prophet Isaiah, you wouldn't recognize something like this. But, but Peter's quoting those two lines, and these are, are passages in Isaiah that, that the early church knows intimately because the prophet Isaiah is a great prophet of the Messiah to come. So they're steeped in this prophecy, and they recognize immediately when the words are changed, kind of like if I were to say to you that the Declaration of Independence attests to your unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of misery. And you might say, wait a second, you're remembering wrong. It's not misery, it's, it's happiness. And then you might think, wait, I don't think you're remembering wrong. I think you're changing the words to make a point, a point like this, that maybe the pursuit of happiness is a path to misery, that the choices that we make in order to be happy are the very choices, ironically, that sabotage 
our happiness, something like that. In other words, taking that familiar quotation and altering it calls attention to the words that are changed. Right? Puts them in a new light, causes you to think about what those words might mean. And so it's interesting to see specifically where the substitution is made. Isaiah says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And Paul says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What? Doesn't that mean the exact opposite? Like one of them is so good, and the other one, it kind of makes it sound so bad. Like it's, he's flipping the meaning of the words upside down. And, and you're right. You're right. But he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it to illustrate a point. There's, there's one stone. It's the same in both cases. Jesus. But two different paths. And depending on the path, that stone can be a cornerstone or a stumbling stone. The stone doesn't change. It's how you approach it. Paul's point is that without faith, the cornerstone becomes a stumbling stone. Without faith, the cornerstone becomes a stumbling stone. But through faith, the stumbling stone becomes our cornerstone. Through faith, the cornerstone, the same stone, the stumbling stone becomes a cornerstone. You see the point. There's one stone, Jesus, but the stone is one thing to those who have faith and something very different to those who rely on works. If it sounds familiar, it should. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 in verses 23 and 24. He says, we preach Christ crucified. You're like, wonderful. But it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the cross. We preach the atonement, the sacrifice that Jesus made, the blood that covers our sins. That's the gospel that we preach, and it is a stumbling block to the Jews, he says. And it is folly to the Gentiles. It is foolishness to the Greeks. The same Jesus, the same gospel, the same stone, but it's a stumbling stone to those who pursue righteousness through works. But, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, the next verse, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the stone hasn't changed. Right? There's not two different Jesuses. There aren't two crosses, two atonements. It's the same. It's the same. The difference is how you approach them. The difference is what path you travel. Without faith, the cornerstone becomes a stumbling block. Going through the motions won't save you. Participating in the rituals won't save you. Going through the motions of religion, doing your duty towards God, will not save you. If it would, then those who sought righteousness that way would have been saved. It doesn't work that way. If anything, it trips you up. 
it trips you up. James says faith without works is dead. But what do you think works without faith are? How do you think James would consider works without faith? Not well. To be righteous, to be good, to perform those works and to do it apart from faith would be meaningless. Because without faith, the cornerstone becomes a stumbling block. Look, there are a lot of people who tell themselves, I'm a good person, I don't need Jesus. You proclaim the gospel, you talk about this shed blood for sin and that sort of thing, and and if I were a terrible person, maybe I would need something like that, but that's not the kind of person I am. I'm actually reasonably good. I'm, I'm pretty okay as I am. A lot of people reject the gospel out of a spirit like that. You might think of that as, as a unbelief, but it's a self-righteous unbelief. It's not, I'm a terrible sinner, but I refuse to believe in Jesus. It's like, that Jesus is not relevant to my situation. Because I'm pursuing righteousness through another path. I don't need the righteousness of Christ to be imputed to me because I'm working on another project. I'm getting righteousness another way. Right? We're surrounded by that. There are also a lot of people who go through the rituals of faith. Go to church, endure a sermon, participate in the rituals, go through the motions. You may tell yourself you do that and you believe. I believe God's up there. I want him to be happy with me. If this is what I have to do, I'll do it. Fine, I'll make that sacrifice. And yet, you do it on autopilot. You go through the motions apart from faith, as if performing the works without faith would somehow be enough. But again, if that worked, it would have worked for Israel, who pursued righteousness through works. And Paul says it didn't, and that it never does. So you stumble your way through the ritual, thinking that should be enough. You've sacrificed your Sunday morning to God. You should be satisfied with what you've done. But what happens when you do that? And I say this as someone who knows how it feels, as someone who's done this very thing. The sacrifice that you make, as as light as it is at the beginning, begins to weigh heavily. And at the beginning, it seems like sacrificing a morning to God isn't much of a loss. but, But going through the motions in that way, suddenly it starts to seem like more and more of an ask on God's part for him to expect you to do this week in and week out when the rituals feel so empty and you're just going through the motions, just reading the words off the page. So it begins to seem like God, if he were reasonable, would only expect this from you maybe twice a year, and that should be enough. You get the idea. Going through the motions apart from faith, doing the good works, performing the obedience apart from faith, it doesn't fix anything or change anything. Without faith, the cornerstone becomes a stumbling block and you start to resent the things that you're giving to God. You resent the sacrifices that you make to him. It's what we do. They become tedious and frustrating and eventually you can't stand it. Paul says the cross of Jesus, the atoning sacrifice that he makes, becomes a stumbling block. Or to use Isaiah's words, 
a petron scandalou, a, a rock of offense. In, in the Greek, that word scandalou is translated here of offense, but you could hear the, the cognate in English, scandal. So you'll sometimes hear people talk about the scandal of the cross or the offense of the cross. And when we say that, what we mean is that the atonement is an offense. It's a scandal in the sense that the atonement is something that asks you to consider that you're incapable of salvation apart from Christ, that you actually need the cross in order to be saved. It's offensive because it's suggesting that the works that you're performing are not worth what you think they are, that they're not good enough. And that's offensive. If you're pursuing a path of righteousness by works and you encounter the cross, which says to you, none of that is of value. It's a stumbling block. It's something to trip over. It's, it's an offense. But what's tripping you up isn't Jesus. What's tripping you up isn't Jesus. What's tripping you up is your commitment to works. What's tripping you up is your commitment to your own righteousness. That's why you stumble. Jesus isn't a, a, a trap designed to, to make you fall. It's just that the cornerstone always becomes a stumbling block to those who trust in works and not in faith. But with faith, everything changes. With faith, everything changes. Through faith, the stumbling block becomes our cornerstone. The very same stone is transformed, and all that changes is faith. The cornerstone. The cornerstone is what holds up the foundation, the rock that all the rest of the weight rests upon. The foundation of what, you may ask? What is Jesus the foundation of exactly? Well, Paul answers this question in Ephesians 2. Jesus is the cornerstone, the, the, the rock upon which the church is built, the household of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church, the household of God, a holy temple to the Lord, built on a foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets, a a doctrinal, a theological foundation, and the word that was revealed through them. But the anchor point, the cornerstone on which all of it rests, is Christ. He's the cornerstone of the household of faith, which means that through faith, the very same thing that was an offense to you becomes your foundation. The pointless rituals, the empty motions, suddenly are transformed by faith into a lifeline. What was once empty becomes full. What was once irrelevant becomes necessary for life. And all that's changed is faith. All that's changed is now you go through the same motions, enter into the same rituals, approach the same stone, but you do it in faith. And what was once a stumbling block becomes a cornerstone. Well, what is faith? 
We talk about faith sometimes as a synonym for belief, but it's possible to believe in things you have very little faith in. So when you think about faith, you have to think about more than merely knowledge, more than merely belief. Right? We remind ourselves that the devils believe and, and tremble, but they don't have faith in Christ. Because faith involves belief, yes, but also trust. There's a sure knowledge, but also a hearty trust that characterizes faith. The path of faith is a path of trust in Christ. And if we walk the path trusting anything else, then the cornerstone becomes a stumbling block. As Paul contemplates this, and and Isaiah prophesies about it, it's a real tragedy that he's contemplating. But don't miss the fact that, that within that tragedy of rejection, there is also this marvelous testimony of acceptance. Right? There is an outpouring of faith that is going on throughout the world, as Paul writes, and is going on today as well. And that says something to us. And it asks the question, what path are we determined to take? What it means for you is this. First of all, the call to the cross is real, and it is for you. The cross doesn't have to be a stumbling stone to you. It doesn't have to be an obstacle. It doesn't have to be something that you trip over. You're not tripping over Jesus because of something Jesus is doing to you. You're tripping over him because you're walking by works and not by faith. Have faith. Trust in him. We are called to faith. That call is real. There's something else, though. If you've been pursuing righteousness through your works in order to come to him, you have to give that up. In order to come to him and trust in him, you have to stop trusting in that. It's not possible to walk both paths at the same time. We can't come to the cross, come to Christ, trust in him, but also trust in other stuff as well. We have to trust in him fully. A lot of us believe, a lot of us trust, we have faith, we recognize my faith isn't strong. I'm not a hero of the faith, but I'm trying, I'm struggling, I want to be more faithful. And this is a call to us as well. Not to just go through the motions. Not to just observe the rituals, because it's what's expected of us. Not to just do our duty, but something else. Something else. To act in faith. The pursuit of righteousness through works is actually hard. The pursuit of righteousness through works is difficult and demanding. But when Christ is your cornerstone, instead you find rest. There's a rest from all your work that is promised in Christ. That rest becomes ours through faith. So if you're trying to follow Jesus without faith, then stop now. There's no other way to follow him but by faith. Don't go through the motions one more time. As we come to the table, do it in faith. Don't observe rituals. Act in faith. 
If you go through the motions, you'll only stumble. But if you come to worship in faith, if you confess your sins and receive pardon in faith, if you hear the word preached in faith, and you come to the table in faith, then Christ, in whom that faith is placed, Christ who gave us these good gifts, will make them gifts again to us. We will find rest in Him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.